provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Of course, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are American Bonanza, Brazil Resources, Helio Resources, Lucky Strike Resources, Merrick's Gold, Metanor Resources, Paramount Gold and Silver, Marathon Gold, Meadow Bay Gold, and Rye Patch Gold Corp. Well, before we went to the break, we were talking about the insistence on the policymakers of sticking to the status quo, even though it is very obvious that the monetary and fiscal stimulus policies in the Great Depression did not work and that even more of the same is proving not to be effective this time post-Lehman Brothers. So what I want to talk to you now uh, about is the direction I think things are going to head and how I believe that you should best protect yourself against the policies. Uh, We have to assume that the Fed is going to continue doing what it's been doing. It showed no signs to the contrary. It is not learning its lessons from the past. It is continuing to engage in the same kind of futile policies that certainly are not working in terms of what its stated goals are, although, as I pointed out last hour, they seem to be working remarkably well in terms of what the unstated goals, uh, seemingly unstated goals of the Federal Reserve are. Okay, let's take a look at where we are now. The biggest, I think, most important statistic to keep in mind is the debt-to-GDP relationship. We are at a huge amount of debt, and I'm talking about all manner of debt. I'm talking about government debt, all levels of government. I'm talking about corporate debt as well as individual debt, mortgages, credit cards, etc. And the latest reading that we have is something like $57 trillion in the United States, total debt. Now, it's important, not so much the absolute amount of debt as is what is important is the relationship between the debt and the GDP. And a slide that I show in my presentations really, I think, brings this point home very well. We have an exponential growth uh, shown as a red line on the chart uh, for debt and a linear growth in income, GDP. 
That's the blue line. And what we've seen since Lehman Brothers is an abatement of the rise in total debt. Yes, that's true. Total debt has sort of curled over at the top. It's no longer rising exponentially as it was. But the gap between total debt and GDP is enormous. And you could argue that GDP number is the number that the government gives us. Again, I believe GDP is not as strong as government claims it is because government is understating the inflation rate. Be that as it may, we are in big trouble because of this enormous gap. We cannot pay the debt. And this is the Kondratiev cycle uh, insights that Ian Gordon brings, I think, is that once you reach a certain level, the debt cannot be repaid. So the Fed continues to try to pump money into the system. And it's really, as we pointed out, not working. The banks are not lending. So they can't gain any traction in terms of stimulating the economy through monetary policy. Now, we've had this quantitative easing is what Ben Bernanke, uh, known, nicknamed Helicopter Ben because he suggested if we just literally drop trillions of dollars out of helicopters, we can overcome this deflationary depression. Uh, we've had quantitative easing taking place before Lehman Brothers. As the Chinese and other countries decided they didn't want to buy so much debt, we've seen more and more uh, quantitative easing. That is the Federal Reserve buying debt. When other countries wouldn't take their savings and buy debt, we printed money. The Federal Reserve, that is the creature from Jekyll Island, created money out of nothing and bought U.S. Treasuries, uh, lowering the interest rates, no doubt, on U.S. Treasuries from where they would be if they were allowing the free market to work. In spite of this huge amount, or, or I should back up a minute, uh, what we've had then, in fact, was this enormous growth of, of quantitative easing prior to Lehman Brothers, Immediately following Lehman Brothers, we saw a sharp dip in this purchase of U.S. Treasuries. But then, when Mr. Bernanke threw caution to the wind, he went out and bought mortgage-backed securities and agency securities as well. Of course, these are uh, this is following the housing debacle when the housing markets collapsed uh, and the mortgages went uh, uh, went south. Basically, when a, a large percentage of American uh, houses and mortgages are really in default and cannot be uh, cannot be handled in the private sector. So the Federal Reserve went out and printed money and went out and bought that debt. So the Federal Reserve now has a lot of really bad assets on its books, but it has money. It's pumped money into the banking system. But again, as I pointed out, that is not causing anything uh, to take hold, uh, anything to speak of in the economy. We continue to look at the Case-Shiller Housing Index, and we notice that with this uh, intervention in the markets, the freefall in housing prices has has stopped and we're seeing something on the order of a 3% or 3.5% year over year decline we're told in 2011 compared to 2010. So we've seen housing prices uh, continue to fall but at a much slower pace. Uh, but housing prices are still way above where they were historically and no doubt way above where the market would like them to be or would have them to be if the Federal Reserve stepped aside and stopped printing money to buy mortgage debt uh, securities and, and uh, propping up the mortgage market. <clears throat> We're still in big trouble with respect to the mortgage uh, market and the housing market because they are not allowing the market to settle out and to find its equilibrium. The delinquency rate among subprime lenders, uh, subprime borrowers, is still uh, north of 26% or so. But even with the prime loans, it is up around 7 and 8%. Uh, and all loans, it's uh, somewhere around 10% delinquency rates. These are unheard of 
levels of problems, uh, delinquency problems and failures in the housing market. The bigger issue I think that we need to pay attention to uh, and why I think we're still in big trouble is because of the inventory of homes that are on the markets for sale and the um, uh, and the demand is just there's just a huge gap between the the uh, home sales uh, and the inventory uh, that's the blue line on the chart uh, in the home sales to inventory ratio that's shown uh, that I show also uh, in my in my talks. Now again, I mentioned that the Federal Reserve has pumped huge amounts of money into the system. So what we see uh, is a St. Louis adjusted monetary base, which has just absolutely gone ballistic after Lehman Brothers, from about 800 billion to close to 2.7 trillion dollars of monetary base. This is money that's pumped into the banking system, into those 2,900 banks, but primarily to those big guys, the big guys at the top. That uh, you know, the top four or five banks that are really eating up the liquidity, and they have huge amounts of money in their system. Money that, by the way, I think has gotten out uh, through hedge funds and so forth to uh, create commodity booms that are artificial and not really lasting because the global underlying economy is not that strong. So we have this huge amount of monetary base that is money that's pumped into the system, the monetary base from the St. Louis Fed. It's just absolutely, it's gone ballistic since Lehman Brothers. And yet, in spite of that, as I pointed out, the excess reserves have increased dramatically as well. And so we're seeing reserves from essentially zero before Lehman Brothers to $1.6 trillion post Lehman Brothers and now. Just absolutely skyward, skyrocketing exponential growth in reserves and depository institutions. So despite this, though, the problem that we're having with this huge housing overhang and with housing being such an important contributor to the economy, this, I think, is the key. Alan Greenspan pumped huge amounts of money into the system during the 90s that led to the housing overbuilding, overbuying. We had this housing bubble that was created by none other than Alan Greenspan. You don't have to look any further than Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who pumped huge amounts of money in, caused this distortion in the housing markets, and now we have all of these big problems. But here's the point that I think is really needs to be recognized. If you look historically, this shows how different this housing market is now compared to the past. In the past, when we had recessions, we would have a very shaped, a very short V-shaped recovery. We'd have, uh, we've had a dip to around 800,000 home starts, housing starts a year, uh, and then a sharp recovery. Uh, in a matter of months or a month or two or so, we would see the bottom and up we would go and the housing construction, uh, would really start to spur the economy. This time, since the housing bubble burst, we're seeing uh, housing starts below 600,000 uh, annual starts, and yet not just for a month or two, but now for a couple of two, three years, we're seeing this uh, bottom. Uh, absolutely no hope in the housing market with all of these houses uh, waiting to be to work their way through through the foreclosure and these huge amounts of houses on the market, people cannot pay the mortgages. Now, as long as the unemployment picture remains as it is, it's very little, I think, very little hope that the housing uh, situation will improve. It's a chicken and egg situation, I suppose. Uh, if the housing market weren't so sick, we would see a better economy and we'd see more employment and less unemployment. But the chart that I'm showing you now uh, that I like to show my uh, the people when I give my talk shows unemployment at nine and a half percent, 
Uh, this was in February of 2011. Actually, the statistics have come down some from that level now. But the main, almost everywhere in the country, we're seeing over uh, between seven, uh, over seven percent unemployment, and large sections of our economy, well over ten percent unemployment. Uh, these are huge unemployment numbers, huge numbers of people. And again, this is using the government statistic; they don't count people anymore that are no longer looking for jobs. The only really bright section in the country is through the mid section of the United States, where we have an agricultural belt in which uh, we really are still producing things that the world needs. That is agriculture. And Mr. Bernanke and the Federal Reserve has not been able to destroy agriculture just yet. Give them time, they may be able to do that, given monetary and fiscal policies, who knows. Uh, let's hope and pray not. But the point is that unemployment is really a big, big problem, and that is also uh, leading to uh, the decline in demand for real goods and services in, in the United States, along with the fact that everybody is basically tapped out on their uh, credit cards and their credit lines. So not surprisingly, then, consumer sentiment is about as low as we've ever seen it. Uh, consumer sentiment uh, recently, uh, as of August, uh, we were looking at very, very low numbers, uh, of uh, uh, almost as low as we've seen in the past. Uh, Any time in the recent future, uh, actually, uh, it rivals the recent past of, of May 30th, 1980, was the last time we've seen anything like this. And in 1980, of course, it was the deepest recession since the Great Depression before this recession. And I believe that this one is going to rival anything we've seen in the 1930s and probably very likely surpass it, especially the longer policymakers persist in defying the markets. Again, the biggest thing that we need to look at is the U.S. total debt to GDP. And the numbers are north of 350% total debt to GDP. This is the highest we have ever seen it in the United States. The last time it rivaled this, well, it didn't even rival this, it was the 1930s. In 1933, we saw a 264% number debt to GDP. And that really occurred because GDP fell off the table. We had a huge decline in GDP. So far, we've had just a minuscule recession this time, nothing very big. Uh, and so either the debt is going to have to come down, we have to have a further deleveraging, very substantial deleveraging, uh, or we're going to see um, growth in the economy. And given the housing problems and the other problems around the world, uh, you know, we talked about the housing sector. That's certainly a big problem. But there are other problems in Europe. And some people believe that the Chinese economy also is uh, is on death's doorstep as well. And if they're right, then God help us. I don't see where growth, even agricultural exports, will come in from the, uh, for the United States at that point in time. But um, uh, this is uh, really what we're talking about so far is total debt to GDP. Uh, and we're talking about what is on the books for the federal government. It actually is worse than what it looks like because there's a huge amount of debt, especially given the demographics and the baby boomers that are now reaching retirement age in the United States, a huge amount of off-balance sheet obligations from the federal government for Social Security as well as uh, Medicare. Another economist that I've had on this radio show in the past, Lawrence Kotlikoff, has looked at the total U.S. dollar debt or obligations. It's not an off-balance sheet. Uh, obligations in for Social Security and Medicare, and he's come up with a number of something like a present value number, something like two hundred and two trillion dollars. Two hundred and two trillion dollars, as compared to fifty-seven trillion total U.S. dollar debt, all sectors in the U.S. economy. 
And these are numbers that were picked up from the IMF and the uh, Congressional Budget Office. So uh, Kotlikoff was one of two economists uh, the, in the Clinton administration that wanted the Clinton administration to come out and tell the American public uh, the real story about what the true federal government's debt is. And so this is enormous. There doesn't seem to be any way on God's little green earth that this debt can be repaid. And so the question is, the $202 trillion question I like to say is, whether this, prop, uh, whether this process is going to mend itself through a dollar collapse and hyperinflation or a massive deflationary depression. And of the two, uh, I am biased towards a deflationary depression and a quote-unquote stronger dollar, or a dollar, a U.S. dollar that is strong relative to other paper currencies, though I don't believe it will be strong relative to gold. Now, in order to try to put aside my own biases, to try to determine... Uh, objectively, which way things are really going, I put together something I call my inflation-deflation watch. And this is really a composite of various indicators such as Chinese stocks, Indian stocks, consumer stocks, S&P 500 uh, stocks, autos, housing, copper, energy, silver, gold, and U.S. treasuries. All of those items thrown into a basket to try to determine whether or not the system is inflating or deflating. And I started this, uh, this index or this watch back in January 31st, 2005 at a index level of 100. Uh, it has grown, it grew very dramatically before the Lehman Brothers collapse as we saw a lot of inflation, commodity inflation taking place and growth and then of course the housing bubble. Uh, and then with the Lehman Brothers decline, we saw an outright deflation. Uh, from something like 144 down to 94, uh, actually, so we actually dipped below the starting point in 2005, uh, and that took place in 2008, of course, with the Lehman Brothers decline. We bumped along the bottom until about March of 2009, we started to inflate again. Of course, this is when huge amounts of trillions of dollars were pumped into the economy, when I believe a lot of that money went into inflation. Uh, commodity speculation and so forth. Uh, but we have seen, according to the government numbers, at least some real GDP growth. Uh, and uh, that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not um, trying to, uh, to badmouth that at all. We want to see growth in this economy to the extent that it's real. And I believe there has been some moderate growth. But uh, at this point in time, uh, I think it's very possible that we're heading back down, uh, down uh, into a declining economy, global economy as well. We're certainly seeing uh, the problems uh, of over-leveraging and living beyond their means in Europe playing out on a global scene. Uh, and I think this is uh, something we need to really be concerned about. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that I am very concerned about or that I believe that the U.S. dollar could become a quote-unquote strong currency. And the reason I say that is because of what happens during a deleveraging period of time. And I believe, without a doubt, that we are going to delever that debt has to be wrung out of the system. And what happens during these deleveraging periods of time is hammered home by uh, a great economist, John Exter. Uh, and Exter has provided a chart, uh, an inverted pyramid, if you will, that shows uh, the illiquid items, the speculative items at the top of this inverted pyramid, and the most um, stable items and liquid items at the bottom. And John Exter had at the very bottom gold, and right above that, Federal Reserve notes. What happens during the deleveraging periods of time when the bank clerk 
or when the margin clerk calls for the loans, you have to sell the items that you're able to sell. And you want to sell those more speculative, less stable items. Uh, if you can sell the less liquid items, that's what you want to do. Unfortunately, many times you can't. You have to sell items that are more liquid down the inverted pyramid. Uh, uh, down the inverted pyramid. So uh, at the top, extra had items like small businesses, real estate, diamonds and gemstones, over-the-counter stocks, commodities, and uh, muni bonds. At the bottom, as I mentioned, gold. Federal Reserve notes, and above that, Treasury notes, and above that, government bonds, and listed stocks above that. So Exter's idea, and I think that one that has definitely proven to be true uh, following the Lehman Brothers, is that people sell what they're able to, and they scramble for gold, and they scramble for Federal Reserve notes. And when I mention Federal Reserve notes, I'm not talking about uh, money in your checking account, but rather the paper that you carry in your wallet and they put under your uh, under your bed, under your mattress, if you will, uh, because uh, if the banks go bust and you can't get your money out of the banks, that's what the great fear is. Um, and so uh, John Exter provides some great insight. And what happens then when the United States dollar is the largest debtor nation in the world? We have the largest debt. So when the debts need to be repaid, uh, then that means uh, the stuff is sold and there's a huge demand for dollars to buy dollars to pay back the loans. And that's why we've seen the dollar get gain strength following Lehman Brothers and now once again uh, with the European problem. Now here's the news that we need to keep our eyes on and here's the good news. If I have some good news to tell you, it is that Mother Nature, the markets ultimately will prevail over Ben Bernanke and over other uh, people that would try to defy the natural workings of the market. Bob Hoy has gone back and looked at the last 300 years of history, and Bob believes that we are in the sixth major credit deleveraging period in the last 300 years. And what Bob has found is that in each and every case, the real price of gold rises very dramatically during these deleveraging periods of time, and the real price of gold rises relative to other commodities, and that makes it very profitable to mine gold. And, this, uh, and these are periods of time that last from 15 to 20 years when the real price of gold remains very strong. Well, I've taken a look at gold relative to the Rogers Raw Material Fund, and sure enough, after Lehman Brothers, the price of gold has risen very dramatically relative to everything else in the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, which includes items such as um, energy items, lots of energy items, food, base metals, clothing, etc. So before Lehman Brothers in March, or, I'm sorry, in um, July of 2008, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. It rose very dramatically to 44% by March of 2009. It came back a bit with the risk trade going back on, with people becoming optimistic that Mr. Bernanke could pull some rabbits out of hats until the uh, the Greek crisis arose and now the European crisis, and now the rate is up to 47 or 46%, somewhere in that range. So the real price of gold, gold has purchasing power has risen very dramatically since the Lehman Brothers decline. And this is totally consistent with what Hoy has found out. It's consistent with what took place in the 1930s with the real price of gold. It's consistent with what took place in the previous four major credit deflations, that is, uh, credit deleveraging periods of time, which, by the way, the previous four before the 1930s uh, was British uh, was British pound-centric. And the last two, the 1930s and this U.S. dollar, a uh, century because the U.S. dollar has become the world's reserve currency. 
Well, with this rise in gold's purchasing power, we've seen a tremendous growth in the earnings of major gold mining companies. I track seven companies, the following seven, because they were in production uh, before Lehman Brothers, large household name companies that everybody should recognize, Agni Legal, Anglo Gold, Barrick, Gold Corp, Kinross Gold Corp, Newmont Mining, and Yamana Gold Corp. In 2008, collectively, these companies earned $5.77. That grew to $7.05 in 2009, $13.62 in 2010, and $20.22 in 2011, with the year almost over. The projections of the consensus uh, analysts, uh, the consensus opinion of the analysts that track these companies is $28.28 next year. So we've had an explosion of profits in the gold mining sector. This bodes extremely well for the companies that I cover in my newsletter, and uh, I, I want to talk in the next segment after the commercial break, we're going to be talking uh, to Nolan Watson, who's the head of a company that I think is one you should all take a look at. Uh, for reasons that I think will become clear then. But gold mining is really where the action is. Uh, the gold shares were depressed last year. I think that 2012 could be a year in which gold shares do extremely well. As long as the fundamentals remain strong, the major guys are looking for the little guys that that can find the gold in the ground much more effectively. So I think you're going to see an acquisition uh, by the majors of some of the juniors that I cover in my newsletter, and we talk about the sponsors on this show as well. You might be wondering when we might expect this bull market in gold to end, and when we might expect these problems to end, and when we might have another growth in the economy, when uh, the Kondratiev cycle starts anew in a growth phase, and we can start to expand and enjoy life again and not have to worry about uh, deflation and depression. Well, historically we know that these huge bear markets in equities are over when the Dow to gold ratio approaches one to one, when we see a U.S. debt to GDP ratio of more norm normal levels in the 125 to 175% range rather than 325%, when blue chip stocks sell at 10 times earnings or less and pay dividends of 5 to 10%, and when the real price of gold tops out, I would say in 15 to 20 year process from 2007, that's the time scale that I'm looking at. So we're looking at the potential, I believe, for a Dow Jones to reach a thousand or lower. I believe that's possible. Ian Gordon is projecting that. Uh, Robert Prechter is looking at something like 600 on the Dow. Uh, Gordon is looking for $4,000 gold price. I don't know where the gold price is going, but I think more importantly, it's the real price of gold that matters. We want to see, uh, historically, we want to see that gold to Dow ratio bottom out at around 1 to 1 or 2 to 1 at least. Now, if I'm wrong, and I do believe it's possible, I could be wrong, if the dollar really crashes below some sort of a, a 71.38 is sort of a line in the sand that I look at, if the dollar were to crash relative to all the other currencies, then I would take off my deflationary bias and start to look for hyperinflation. Uh, it's, but I, I don't see that happening. Uh, if, if it does happen, I'll change my tune, because then if we're in hyperinflation, then we're looking for, uh, for prices to skyrocket. This would not be a good sign for gold mining companies or for any kind of industry, in my view, but in fact uh, would really pave the way for some very catastrophic uh, events. Deflation, deflationary depression, it's very scary, it's very bad but I think it's much less severe, much less of a problem for people who save their money and work hard 
than a hyperinflation, which would bring most likely bring on totalitarian government, which is a whole other issue uh, that we will be talking about from time to time on this show. Well, that's really all the time I have for this segment, but I am going to be back with Nolan Watson right as we return from the break. Nolan Watson is the CEO of Sandstorm Gold. This is a company that I think all of you, everyone listening to the show, should take a look at because I believe it provides the lowest risk, highest return opportunity in the gold mining sector. And again, the gold mining sector is the sector I think you need to be in uh, in this uh, stormy weather that we have coming our way, this deflationary depression. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Nolan Watson. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol MAYGF on the OTCQX or MAY on the TSX Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada, the right stuff in the right place. Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp. MOZ on the TSX is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its Golden Chest project in Idaho, a historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Time for the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I just spoke about how and why I think we are in the bull market of a lifetime for gold mining shares. I think investors must own gold and silver if they're going to protect themselves against currency debasement uh, that is being carried out by Mr. Bernanke and other central bankers. But buying gold mining shares, especially in the junior sector, can be very challenging, and it can require more time and attention than many of you may be willing or able to spend. Owning a mutual fund is one way to go, and there are several good mutual funds out there. And I have talked on this show and in my newsletter about how I like companies that employ the project generator model, too, because it reduces risk and enhances the probability of success over the longer term. Royalty companies are another way to play the gold mining sector. And one very unique royalty company is Sandstorm Gold. Uh, And so I am very pleased to have with me today Nolan Watson. He is the CEO of Sandstorm Gold Company. Uh, it is a company that uh, I think you're going to find very interesting. I should note that I do own shares of Sandstorm Gold, and it is a recommendation in my newsletter, has been since it went public a couple of years back. Uh, however, unlike most of the companies that you hear me talk about and uh, the CEOs that I talk to, Sandstorm is not a sponsor of this show. I'm simply bringing Sandstorm on uh, to this show to because I really believe it is a unique opportunity and because I believe... Uh, all of my listeners should be invested in gold mining uh, in one form or another, and probably uh, for reasons I think that will become apparent to you as I talk to Nolan Watson in a second, uh, why Sandstorm provides a good risk-return uh, uh, trade-off, really, a way to play this sector. Sandstorm trades in the Toronto uh, Exchange under the symbol SSL. You can buy it down here in the United States, as I have, under the symbol SNDXF, there are approximately 331.7 million shares outstanding. Last I looked earlier today, it was trading at about $1.21 in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of somewhere around $400 million. Welcome, Nolan, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you very much, Jay. Really good to have you with me. Um, I, I want you to explain to our listeners, uh, you are a royalty company, but you're a different kind of royalty company. Can you explain to our listeners your business model? Absolutely. We do something that we call gold streaming, and what we mean when we say that is we go out and we give upfront payments to companies, and what we get in return is a contract, and that contract allows us to purchase a certain percentage of that mine's production for the entire life of the mine, however long that mine may go. So, for example, a contract might say something like, Sandstorm pays $50 million on day one, and we get to buy, say, 20% of all of the gold produced for the life of the mine at a fixed price. And this is one of the keys, a fixed price per ounce for the entire life. So it might say something like we buy at $400 per ounce, 
and no matter how high the cash costs go at the mine or how high the gold price goes for the entire life of the mine, the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're still buying at $400 an ounce. So you can see that there's a significant risk reduction in this business model compared to a uh, owning shares in a normal mining company. Yeah. So no matter how, so I guess the risk reduction would come from this this fact that uh, you're going to purchase your gold at some specified purchase price, no matter what the cost. So I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you set up these contracts, more more or less, you are approximating the cost of production at that point in time. Is that right? Absolutely. It's usually generally around the anticipated cost of production of the mining company, although for those of us who have been investing in the mining industry for a while, we all know that the anticipated cost of production tends to be significantly different than the actual cost of production when a mine gets up and running because miners are notorious for overshooting on their operating costs and their capital costs as well. In fact, we did a study about a year ago that said that the average company going out and building a mine, they're eight months late with their mine, and when they finally do put it online, it only produces 20 to 50% as much as they thought it was going to in the first one or two years Mm. until it takes a few years to get it fully up and running and, and fully operating. And during those years, the mines are losing significant amounts of money while they're trying to fix everything in commissioning, whereas even under a Sandstorm contract in those early years, we're making money because it doesn't matter what the costs are at the mine. As long as the mine continues to operate, we get to buy it 400 and sell at the market price. Right, and I know that when you start to look at projects before you put that capital into a project, you're not only looking at the life of mine that might be defined by a bankable feasibility study at that time, but you are also taking a look at the exploration potential, the potential to build something bigger, either in terms of annual production or increasing the mine life. Is that right? Well, that's exactly right. We, the first deal we actually did is with a company called Luna Gold, and when we did that deal, they had resources that were around a million ounces, and we knew that there was significant expiration upside to that, and so we structured our deal so it's life of mine. And it's only been about two, two and a half years since we struck that contract, but they just came out last month and announced that the resources now are about 3.8 million ounces, and our contract is a 17% of all of those ounces. So where we thought we had 17% of 1 million ounces with upside, we now have 17% of 3.8 million ounces. Wow. And I believe there's significant upside even from this number. So. Wow. Okay, that's the first company that's gone into production. How many do you have? Uh, how many of your investments are now producing gold? We've got seven gold streams, and of those seven, five of them are now up and running. The fifth one being the Ming Mine owned by Rambler, and they've just announced that they are commissioning that mill and are starting to produce from it. We haven't yet received our first gold shipment, but we expect to in January. Okay, and you've got two more that are coming on stream. Uh, what do you expect your gold production will be for 2012, your share of gold production from these various mines? Because we're not actually in control and don't have the say of how the operations go, sometimes we try to delay our guidance until we we have more information. If I had to take a guess, though, today, I would say somewhere around 30,000 ounces for next year, which for a mining company, it's tough to make money at 30,000 ounces a year, but with Sandstorm Golds, because our average margin at today's price is about $1,200 an ounce, and we really don't pay tax on most of those ounces, 
mm-hmm. we are going to have, uh, even at that rate, 35-plus million of free cash flow for the company. 35 million free cash flow. And you are looking to employ that cash flow uh, into other projects. Uh, I know that you are very actively looking. Uh, can you give us some sense of, of where those next investments might come from, or is it too early to do that? Yeah, we're, we're looking at a lot of things. And one thing I should also mention, though, in terms of the cash flow, is all of those mines that we have now done deals on, they're still in the ramp-up phase of the mine. So I would expect if the gold price stays where it is or even goes higher, that two or three years from now our cash flow could double from from some of those fingers, uh, figures that I was mentioning. Mm-hmm. But in terms of going forward and using that actual cash flow that we get, because we don't have debt and we don't have to worry about debt repayment and we don't have to worry about sustaining capital like mining companies do, 100% of that cash gets to be used to go out and make more investments. So we've got a very significant team that we've built up now in Vancouver that their whole job and their only job is to go out and look for more gold streams. So we look at about 100 to 150 opportunities a year. We do site due diligence on a number of those, and I'm hoping that the next year we'll find some more gold streams. I should mention to our listeners that you were also heading up, I believe, Silver Wheaton. Isn't that isn't that correct? Yeah, I was the chief financial officer at Silver Wheaton for a number of years, and I was the first employee there. And actually, the second employee at Silver Wheaton is a guy by the name of David Orham, and mm-hmm. he came over with me at the same time to start up Sandstorm. Yeah, and Silver Wheaton, I might also mention, I believe, sells at some pretty good uh, multiples to cash flow, uh, I believe because the risk is perceived to be less for these kinds of companies, um, very rare kind of uh, royalty company, yours and Silver Wheaton, for example, that the uh, multiples that the investment that the markets are willing to pay sometimes is higher than what you'd see for an individual gold company. Is that right? Absolutely. It depends on, in Silver Wheaton's case, what assumption you make on the long-term price of silver, but the average chart that I've seen shows them trading around 15 times enterprise value to uh, free cash flow multiples. And I think one of the reasons there really is, in my opinion, a strong justification for those higher valuations that royalty companies typically, typically get. And one of them is that when people are looking at operating cash flow of mining companies, what they often don't realize is that the vast majority of that free cash flow from operations has to be quarter after quarter plowed back into the mine in the terms of sustaining capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the operating capital of these mining companies is not actually free cash flow that can be returned to shareholders in the form of dividends, mm-hmm. whereas in a royalty mm-hmm. company like Silver Wheaton, like Sandstorm, all of the free cash flow or all of the operating cash flow is free cash flow that can go right back to investors or can go right to buying more streams. It is really a very, very interesting story. Nolan, I'm very sorry we're out of time. There was so much more I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to get into the individual companies, and maybe we can have you back again sometime to talk about some of the individual companies, because they're interesting to me. Some of those were in my newsletter in the past. Some of them still are. So I want to thank you very much. Tell our listeners your website address so they can follow your company's progress. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Jay. I appreciate it. And for those who are interested, our Email or our website address is www.sandstormltd.com. That's LTD is limited. Very good. Thank you very much, Nolan. I'm sorry we don't have more time. We'll have to have you back. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with Roger Wiegand. We're going to talk about where Roger see them, sees the markets going in 2012. Don't go back. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Roger Wiegand.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol MAYGF on the OTCQX or MAY on the TSX Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada, the right stuff in the right place. Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp. MOZ on the TSX is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its Golden Chest project in Idaho, a historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Voice America Business Network The bottom line in business You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host Jay Taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. We've got a few minutes here to close up uh, this show, and actually this is the last show for 2011. I have Roger Wiegand with me, 
Uh, so I'm going to ask him a few questions about his performance last year and, and where he sees things going into 2012. Welcome, Roger. Good to be here, Jay. Thank you uh, for being with me, Roger. Just uh, like to ask you, what was your best pick in 2011, and what was your worst pick in 2011? I would say probably the best pick was Predium. Um, we we recommended the stock at around six dollars and change. It went to thirteen. Uh, we put out a recommendation to sell it. Uh, went down to eight, nine, or ten. We recommended a buy, and now it's back up again. Mm-hmm. All right. Not a bad pick. It's one that's been on my list as well. Let me ask you, uh, what was your worst pick then? Well, the worst pick was we had a recommendation on a, on a buy the shares or, or buy uh, stock options on AGQ. AGQ is a leveraged silver fund. It's an ETF. Uh, two years ago, uh, we had an excellent run when, when it was first offered. Uh, we, we earned... On the recommendation, 125 a share in just a matter of a few weeks was fabulous. And then um, the next year, which was this this past year, 2011, we recommended um, either the shares and or the options. And they did a split, and they took the teeth out of the deal. And what happened was uh, it looks like it's been manipulated. It won't behave properly. And we've got it open now in a negative number. And my recommendation is to our traders to just let it go back to even and then get out and stay out when they come back to even. And they will, Jay, when the uh, when silver does come back. I'm pretty sure it will come back. Okay, let's look at some of the markets for 2012, and maybe you can give us uh, what you see technically in terms of, um, of, of sort of a, uh, a baseline uh, and an upside resistance levels. What about the dollar? Well, the dollar has been stuck on 80 which is a major average index number right now. Uh, we did rec- say that was going to happen a couple of weeks ago, and it has. We also said the uh, euro would stick at 130. That's happened, too. And what that has done, Jay, it's, it's put a new floor under the whole commodity sector, and a lot of the funds were out or going out of the commodities over the past two to four weeks. Now it's done a reversal. Oil is back over $100 at 101 the grains are going back up. Uh, silver and gold are soft right now, but that's just a holiday thing. After that, next month, we're going to start new rallies, and then off we go. So, you know, we see a, a major commodity rally with two corrections between now and May. Okay, but I want the dollar. What are we going to see? What's a high and a low 2000? High and a low on the dollar. dollar would be 77 to 82. 80 is where it is now. And a low? The low 77. Okay, and what about the Dow? The Dow is uh, could touch a high of 1280, 1280.50, 13. Then it would do a double top and then start to sell and then continue on. I think you're going to be surprised with the stock market, the broader markets. I think they're going to be better from January through May. Uh, we're looking for about a 12% correction in the spring. And then in the fall of next year, uh, in 2012, uh, we're looking for a major haircut. Okay, a high and a low for the Dow, 2012. Uh, I would say the high, 12,850.13 would be the high, and the low could be as bad as 72,50. Wow, that would be uh, quite a horrendous uh, hit. Uh, what about uh, what about gold? High uh, and low. Gold, gold today is at 15,96 on Fed futures. Uh, we see a modest uh, gain to like 16 and 16. 16- 50 
uh, this week, and then we're looking in, in next year, we're looking for a trading range of about 1750 to 2050. I see a high for gold in the first half of 2012 of $2,050, and then you'll see a pullback correction probably to 1750 or so. And then the second half of the year, uh, it's going to be kind of crazy, Jay, and I'm going to have to do some tech work in the spring to really try and figure out what's going to happen. I am deliberately not going to take any long positions on a lot of our stuff we normally buy in the first half of 2012 until I get to May or June and can see where we are. I think the last quarter of 2012 is going to be a real adventure. What about silver? High and a low for 2012. Silver got hit pretty good, but silver right now is $28.66. We think in the first half of 2012, uh, we could have a low of 26.5, but we could also have a high of 42.85. And let's uh, look at the long bond. Where do you think that's going, 2012? Uh, first half, the long bond should have a low of 140 and a high of 146. And for the year? And for the year, I think as a year, as we go deeper into the year, depending on Europe, it could sink under 140. We could go down to 136. Okay, what about oil? Oil today has gone up. It's 101, $101 and then a quarter. And I, my high in the first half uh, on the cycles for oil is $120. Uh, Goldman Sachs had 130 and they backed up to 120 as well. Okay. And for that's for the year? That's for the first half. Okay. And you don't want to go out for the year? Well, for the year, it just depends on so many unknowns. I mean, are right. we going to have a war with the Middle East? Yeah. Are we going to have, you know, there's a lot of things that enter into it. Okay. Uh, if, if, there's, if something serious happens in the Middle East, uh, it could go to 150. Okay, Roger, that's get... all the time we've got, unfortunately. Uh, folks, uh, next week I want you to come back and listen to Dr. Michael Berry, who will be our major, our, our main guest next week. Uh, he is the discovery investment guy, uh, a, an economist and one who uh, provides lectures to the Federal Reserve. Can you imagine that? Dr. Michael Berry will be with us next week, so we hope you'll be back with us. In closing, I want to thank Tacey Trump, uh, my executive uh, producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Network. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.